Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Jolly. And today, guys, again, we have a very special guest, a dear friend of mine, Mr. Justin Peters. So, Justin, thank you for coming on to the show again. Nathaniel, my pleasure, brother. Good to be with you. So, um, today, you know, I think this is right up your alley, Justin. Over the last months, I've been seeing guys on Facebook and, and various media venues asking the question, particularly after they see things on how dangerous the charismatic church is, the question always comes up, well, how do I witness to my charismatic family and friends? How do I have that conversation? And so, yeah, I'd just love to dialogue with you a little bit during this podcast, ask you a few questions. Some guys sent me in from the Twitterverse and maybe just run through a real life scenario with you and just just help folks who, you know, they, they have friends that are in this movement or family members. They realize that it's dangerous, but they just aren't really sure how to go about talking to them, witnessing to them. Um, it, you know, may, maybe they have the thought, in fact, I think I, I saw someone at some stage post something like, well, James White is a brilliant apologist. He can do those things, but my brain isn't a sponge and I'm no James White. I, I love James <laughs> White stuff, but it, it, but it's, it's, a, it's a great question. I think a lot of people have, you know, just h- how do I go about doing this? I'm not a trained apologist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, if, if you've seen my DVD, Clouds Without Water, my seminar, you know I deal with the metaphysical cultic origins of the word faith movement and the doctrines that they teach that are very heretical. Uh, but when uh, someone is trying to witness to a friend or family member who is caught up in this movement, I don't encourage them to automatically launch into well, you know, the word of faith movement and charismatic is rooted in the metaphysical cults like Christian science and Gnosticism and New Thought, and it uh, has a very aberrant view of the atonement because they're, you know, and, and they teach the kenosis theory because their eyes are going to glaze over. They're, they're not going to know what you're talking about. So I, I encourage people to start with something very simple and very concrete. For example, healing. And um, I, I say, just ask your friend or family member, say, hey, do you believe that it is always God's will for someone to be healed? And of course, they will respond, yes, because that is the teaching in this movement. And then you can simply say, well, uh, if, if that is the case, then how do you explain Moses in Exodus chapter 4, when God spoke to Moses and said, who has made man's mouth, who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind, is it not I, the Lord? Uh, how do you explain uh, David, who was afflicted? Uh, how do you explain Elisha, Second mm-hmm. uh, Kings chapter 13? Elisha was, um, the Bible says, was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And this, despite the fact that he had a a double portion anointing of the great prophet Elijah. And so he was sick and he died of his sickness. What do you do with Paul? And I wouldn't even go to the thorn in the flesh where a lot of people go to 2 Corinthians 12. I I say flip over to Galatians chapter 4, verse 13 and 14 there. Paul says that it was because of a bodily illness 
that I came and preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus himself. And so here you have the Apostle Paul, and he quite clearly states he was sick. He had a bodily illness. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the man who wrote Romans, you know, first and second Corinthians, the pastoral epistles and all. And he was sick. So then the ball is in their court. Then they're going to have to make a decision. Who am I going to believe? The prosperity preacher that I've been listening to or what I see in black and white right in front of me? All of these faithful servants of God who were sick. And uh, I encourage people to start with something like that, as I said, very simple and concrete, just to get a feel for how open they are to having their theology corrected by Scripture. And when I've done this with folks and shown them these examples, I've had one of two responses, and generally you get one or the other. One, one response, I've had people look at me and they say, well, and they've pointed to the Bible, the verses I've shown them, they've said, I don't care what that says. You know, I know that my my God would not make anybody sick. And, and of course, I think, well, you're right. Your God wouldn't, but but the God of the Bible would. And uh, and so if their if their heels are dug in and they show absolutely no willingness to have their theology corrected by Scripture, then there's no other card to play. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can't go anywhere from there because this does come down to a matter of authority. What's your authority? And if they won't, if they're not willing to have Scripture be their authority and Scripture co correct their theology, then there's there's really no other card to play. You you know, talk about the weather, talk about whoever you know who won the ball game or something like that, or, but you can't talk about theology because that that must be our authority. Now, on the other hand, I've also had people say something to the effect along these lines: "Wow, well, you know, I've never really thought about that. Uh, gosh, um, you know, I I, I don't know." I don't know. If you sense in that person uh, some humility and some willingness to have his or her theology corrected by Scripture, mm -hmm. then that's a good sign. That's what you hope to see. And, um, and so if you do sense that in the person, that they are willing to reason from the Scriptures and, and be corrected by the Scriptures, then that's, that's uh, uh, an open door there for you and, and take an opportunity to spend more time with that person because if, if, if they're willing to have their theology correct, corrected by Scripture, then, then they should be willing to you know, have it corrected in a number of areas and that you spend more time with them then if you get that kind of response. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure that is incredibly helpful. You've been doing this for a really long time. So just for the sake of explanation and your longevity in this kind of ministry, how long have you been studying the charismatic church, uh, helping folks work through these doctrinal errors and issues? Oh my goodness. I, I guess uh, I, I started studying it in a, in a deliberate kind of way in the, in the late nineties. So over 20 years now, uh, yeah. Wow. I mean, so you, you may or may not say say this about yourself, but I'll say it for you. I mean, Justin really is an, an expert in this movement, what goes on, what the staples are, as it were. Yeah, you brought up some really good points, Justin. And I think the, the first one is maybe don't treat your family members 
like their Kenneth Copeland and instantly do things that would put up walls. Um, you know, yeah. these are your friends, your family members. And, and so the goal, and I can think back into when I first was coming out of the charismatic movement myself, my goal was just to beat people with the truth. And that was really bad. Our goal is to bring people to the truth, right? Uh, right. And, right. and so we want to treat family and, and friends with that level of relationship and and respect. And, you know, I guess the other thing is, and I'm sure you would agree with this, if you do run into that first response, we should go to the power of prayer, right? We should be doing that anyway. Um, But God is ultimately the one who softens hearts. Um, You know, it's his word that convicts people. And so, uh, don't feel like if you come up to that wall, it's just absolutely a no-go. You know, that's when you you go back to your prayer closet and you trust God with those opportunities, you know, as they come up. Yeah, that's right. It it may be a no-go right there on the spot, you know, but uh, but yeah, absolutely. Continue to pray for that person and pray that God would open their eyes because this is uh, this is spiritual blindness and and it will take a move of the holy spirit to open their eyes and and that's that is what it will take but happily i mean i can say i receive emails daily from people all around the world that uh who god has delivered out of this very deception so so it does happen and you never know when the light may come on with someone you never know so um, continue to pray for them. And as you have opportunity to witness to them, you know, maybe a week or two down the road or whatever, revisit it, you know, say, hey, have you given any thought to what we talked about, you know, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago or whatever? And just kind of, you know, see if, if you know, maybe, they, maybe they'll soften later. You, you never know. You, you never know when the light will come on. So. Maybe slip a copy of Strange Fire in in their um, you know Christmas gift. Right. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Put Strange Fire in the, as a stocking stuffer. <laughs> uh, that'd be great. And and two, you might want to point out to them um, and something else that I this is something I do frequently as well is uh, I point out how what the faith preachers preach doesn't even work for them because they get sick just as regularly as we do. I mean, look at Bill Johnson. I mean, this is a guy, Bethel Church. I mean, he's kind of at the the, the top of the pyramid here of, of teaching that it is always God's will to be healed. In fact, he even says, I refute, quote, I refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. And he says that as he's wearing eyeglasses on his face. You know, and I bet no one thinks of that really. I know it's amazing. You know, just like look at him. I mean, look at what he's saying. It is just looking at him is a it's a self refutation of his own theology. So um, yeah, never trust a faith healer who's wearing eyeglasses. And and um, you know, I take no joy in this, but his own wife Benny has had cancer. I don't know the status of her cancer at this point, but she has had it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these people, Jesse Duplantis, watch Jesse Duplantis when he preaches. And he, he rarely reads out of his Bible, rarely reads any any notes, but when he does, he puts eyeglasses on his face to do it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And go to their churches. I mean, when, you, when, the, when the television camera gives you shots of the audience, Look at how many people are wearing glasses. Same percentage of people wearing glasses in those meetings as wear them in the general public. So there, there's literally no difference. I mean, that, that, that's a 
That's a good observation. And while we're at it, since we're in the era of COVID-19, just to point out that, um, you know, guys like Bethel Church in Redding, California, actually closed down their healing rooms because of a virus, right? <laughs> right. which is a big deal. And, and then they went on to do healing. They opened up the healing rooms again, but they did it online because of the virus. Yeah. Um, and, and now... You know, the virus is some folks have contracted it within the church and it's spreading around and we're not besmirching them for the church being open. That's what we would all say it should be open. But the point is, he has this theology of always healing and yet there's a virus active within the congregation. So, Justin, l- let me ask you a couple questions that we, we had come in from folks because I, I posted on the Twitterverse that you were going to be coming on and ask guys for questions they would like to ask. So, one of them is, is simply this, is there a main scripture or doctrine to focus on when family or friends bring up their personal experience or say that they've witnessed firsthand the sign gifts? Is this is a big one, right? Guys that say, well, I saw someone fall over slain in the spirit or I, I just was laughing uncontrollably. It couldn't have been me. What, what do you, how do you move that into a right, healthy direction? Yeah, well, I, w- I would say a, a couple of things. I would, I would say, one, you cannot interpret the Bible by what you experience. You must interpret your experiences by the Bible. Uh, I do not doubt that many people are having experiences. Uh, I don't doubt that some people have been slain in the Spirit. But here's the thing. Um, Hindus experience the exact same things that Charismatics do. They get slain in the spirit, too, uh, in Hindu Kundalini. They speak in tongues. In fact, they speak in tongues in exactly the same way that charismatics do. There's literally no difference in how they do it. And and these are rank pagans. I mean, these are Hindus, for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. And yet they speak in tongues in exactly the same way as charismatics. So you cannot interpret the Bible by what you experience. You must interpret your experiences by the Bible. And... um, you know, with dealing with being slain in the spirit, my question is, where is it in the Bible? Where's the biblical support? The closest thing you could find to being slain in the spirit modeled in scripture would be uh, when the Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus and they said, Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And I know your Bible say I am he, but that he is italicized. It's not in the um, it's not in the text. But anyway, uh, when he said that I am, they drew back. It says the Roman soldiers drew back and, and fell to the ground. And that's the closest thing to being slain in spirit that we see in Scripture. But the question must be asked, uh, who were these people that were doing the falling? Were these Christians? No. In, in fact, it's John chapter 18. Uh, who were these people that were doing the falling? Mm-hmm. They were not Christians. These were the Roman soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. So you can't take that as biblical support for something that uh, should be normative for us today as believers. Uh, you just can't can't do that. Uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, I guess you could say they were slain by the Spirit, but not slain in the Spirit. Literally. Literally slain by the Spirit. And... Uh, so there's no biblical support for it at all. There's no biblical support for Holy Ghost laughter. Uh, I, as far as experiences go, I tell people to flip over to Second Peter, chapter one, if you want to look at ex- an experience. 
Second Peter chapter one, of course, this is written by the apostle Peter and there in verse 19, well, let's back up to 16. Uh, Peter says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so Peter is describing what happened with him and James and John at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, when Jesus was transfigured with Moses and Elijah recorded in Matthew 17, that's what he's talking about. And uh, Peter says uh, that we heard the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this declaration made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And, and then look at what he says in verse 19. He says, but we have the prophetic word made more sure, more certain mm -hmm. to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So Peter is saying that the prophetic word, the written word of God, the scriptures are more certain than what they experienced at the Mount of Transfiguration. When they saw the glory of Jesus, mm. uh, th that veil, his glory that had been veiled by his humanity, they saw that peeled back a bit, and they saw his glory transfigured there in front of them with Moses and Elijah. And whatever experience you think you may have had, I guarantee you it doesn't approach that experience. Yeah, you know, I don't care what kind of voice you think you might have heard or, you know, like uh, Bill Heibel says, he thought maybe God was speaking to him through a Bud Light beer can floating past his bass boat or some nonsense like that. I don't care what you think you've experienced. You haven't experienced anything like Peter did, mm. Peter, James and John. And if Peter could say of that, the prophetic word, those scriptures are more certain than that then I can assure you they are more certain than anything you think you've experienced. So um, I'm not against experiences in and of themselves, as long as they're biblical. You know, mm. having the, the joy of the Lord in your heart, having an assurance of your salvation, uh, uh, the joy that you feel when, you, when you're reading Scripture and you discover something new, you see something that you've never seen before, and it, it brings a level of understanding to you. You understand a doctrine, uh, you see uh, the, 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 the word um, come alive to you in a particular text that you've maybe just not had that happen before. And that's a thrilling thing. Uh, it's happened, uh, you know, with me any, any number of times, you know, a lot, of course. And, and, uh, and, and that's a thrilling thing. So I'm not against these kind of experiences or the, the blessing of having a clear conscience when you obey scripture. But all this wacky, zany stuff, you know, falling down backwards on the floor and flopping around like a fish and, and thinking that's of God. No, that's not of God. Uh -uh. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think, you know, yeah, experiences do not make good compasses for truth, right? Um, and that, that, that's, that's good stuff, brother. And I, I think also I, I often re am reminded of Job because the book of Job gives us a unique perspective that Job himself didn't have when we're talking about experiences, right? Um, and I, I like to, if, if, if I'm able to with people, I like to take them to Job just to illuminate the fact that experiences can be deceptive as we get to see both of what God's doing and what Job's experiencing there. And the reality is he, he doesn't have that full picture. So all he knows, right, is that God is sovereign and, and that, you know, he's going to praise God whether he 
has what he has or it's been taken away. And so our experiences can be like that too. In fact, I, I would argue that they really are in the sense of, I have no idea what God is or isn't doing necessarily in my life and in my experiences. And sometimes just a little more information and we can all probably find uh, situations in the past where um, you add a little bit of information to it and it kind of changes the whole picture, right? We see that even in the secular world where it looks like one thing and then you get some extra information and it's totally different. So just trusting our experiences can be a very dangerous thing to do, especially when we're talking about making them doctrine. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Very dangerous thing to do. So, you know, and I think a lot of people get this idea about me and other cessationists. Oh, you just, you, you put God in the box. You don't believe in the, in the gifts. You don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit or anything like that. And no, to the contrary, I, uh, I, am, I am so confident in the power and the person of the Holy Spirit of God that I, I don't believe that you can be indwelt by him and teach the kind of heresies that these folks teach. And, um, uh, and, and the real, you know, the the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is not to make you do weird things and make you, you know, behave like an animal. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. That's contrary to the work of the Holy Spirit. The real work of the Holy Spirit is when He illumines illumines the meaning of God's word to our hearts and to our minds, and and uh, He uses us as instruments for His glory. And I know for my myself, like one example, I. A dear lady that my wife and I got to know uh, several years ago, and she was not a believer, and um, I shared the gospel with her oh, many, many, many times, and Kathy did as well. She started coming to church with us. She knew absolutely nothing about the Bible when she when she first started coming to church with us. I mean, absolutely nothing. Didn't even know there was an Old and New Testament. But but uh, after a year or so of witnessing to her and her coming to church with us. God saved her, and she was in her 70s, and God saved her wow. and com- just dramatically changed her. And, and, and since then, she's been growing in Christ, and, and now she's, she's dying of cancer mm. and uh, probably you know, has weeks to live, but she knows where she's going. And, I mean, that kind of an experience, wow. You know, give me that over flopping around on the floor like a fish any day. I mean, that's the true work of the Holy Spirit is when he makes someone alive in Christ. That's yeah. that's what he does, not not angel feathers and gold dust coming out of the vents. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, brother. And I, I, I think too many Christians have minimized the miraculous event that takes place in salvation. Yeah, right. Yep, absolutely. So let me ask you the next question, brother. Uh, Thank you for that. I mean, this is great stuff. I'm sure it's going to be helpful to a lot of folks. So the next question I have here is, how can we show family and friends through scripture that we don't need outside revelation and that the gift of prophecy has ceased? Many claim that the gift of prophecy is still active, but believe there are no prophets. I know there's a whole lot of stuff in that, but uh, just speak to whatever part of that you want to, brother. So, yeah, well, uh, yeah, there, there's a, yeah, we could, <laughs> we could, we could spend an awful lot of time there, but, but scripture testifies of itself that it is sufficient, that it is sufficient. And this is really where the battle is being fought today. Um, not so much over inerrancy of scripture, but over, over its sufficiency. And, 
Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired by God and is beneficial, profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped uh, unto every good work, fully equipped. So that is, this is scripture saying of itself, it is enough for mm-hmm. us to be not partially equipped, fully equipped for every good work. And so scripture is enough. Uh, we don't need modern day revelations or uh, God speaking to us outside of scripture and, and you know, dealing with, with prophecy in the sense of God speaking to someone outside of scripture and then that person relaying to others what God said. Uh, if that's really what's happening, then then by definition, Scripture is not enough. Mm. Uh, because if it was, we wouldn't need all these other prophecies. And if that is happening, if God is speaking to people in a direct, quotable sense outside of Scripture, then whatever he is saying should theoretically be just as authoritative as Scripture itself. Because God cannot speak less authoritatively on one occasion than he does on another. If God is speaking, God is speaking. And so uh, God cannot speak, as I said, less authoritatively on one occasion than he does on another. God cannot speak in the Bible and really, really, really mean it. But when he speaks to us today outside of the Bible, he still, he still means it, but not as much as he meant it in Scripture. How does that work? Did he have his fingers crossed? I mean, he, you know, he just sort of meant it. You know, it doesn't work. So if, if there are modern-day prophets today, then the canon of Scripture is open. We, we've got an open canon of Scripture. And so, you know, you've opened a whole big can of theological worms with that. So, Yeah, there have been entire conferences done on this subject, in fact. But, no, yeah. thanks, brother. I, I mean, that's really good. You make some really good points, especially when dealing with prophecy in the charismatic church. I have never experienced anything other than the idea that today God can speak with less authority, which, as you've made clear, is really just absurd because it changes, I mean, fundamentally changes immutable characteristics of God. Um, right. God, God doesn't change. He's, he's a sovereign being. He's always as authoritative as he always will be. So I, I want to throw a scenario at you. So we've talked a little bit about family and friends. I want to go to a real-life scenario where it's someone that's not quite as close. It's it's an old associate from college, right? So um, I I won't give names or anything, but someone has a a friend from college who's a close enough associate with associate uh, that they communicate. This person is at Bethel, Redding, California, um, actively does so-called prophetic words on Facebook and things like that. And the question is just very simply, where do I even think about starting a conversation with this person? Oh, who's actively at Bethel? Yeah. Yeah, gosh, I guess I guess I would probably come back to how we started this and, and say, you know, give them some very simple, concrete things that they can wrap their minds around and that will will show in no uncertain terms the um, vacuous nature of, of what they're teaching. 
it's always God's will to be healed. What do you do with Elisha, Moses, Timothy, David, uh, the Apostle Paul himself? What do you do with these men? Uh, why is it that Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry has now become a hotspot of COVID? You know, when they, uh, Bill Johnson and Cheon and Chris Balaton and Sean Bolts, they, they decreed COVID to be gone back in March. They banished it. Why is it still here? You know, um, the whole debacle, tragic debacle, but uh, nonetheless it was with the little girl that died at Bethel Church. Uh, Olive Heiligenthal, I think is how you say her last name, a little girl, she was two years old, and she was the daughter of one of their worship leaders. She died, you know, and they tried to raise her from the dead. In fact, Benny Johnson even prophesied that she would be raised from the dead, and she wasn't. Mm. Uh, so, you know, what they preach and teach doesn't work for them. And if what, it, if, if what they teach doesn't work for them, that ought to be a clue to them that there's probably something wrong with what they're teaching. Uh, I mean, this whole COVID thing has exposed the utter bankruptcy of the entire movement in uh, in a way that I've never seen any other single event uh, do. I mean, it's just exposed it on every imaginable level for the farce that it is. And so, um, you know, these for the thinking person, uh, the events of just this year should be more than enough to open people's eyes and say, you know, something's, something's not right here. Yeah, something's yeah. not right here. And uh, a lot of people have contacted me thinking, oh, you know, this was earlier in, in 2020, maybe like in March, April, when COVID was really ramping up and all the shutdowns and everything. And they said, oh, this maybe this will be the end of the Word of Faith movement. And I've said, no, it's not because, I mean, I, I think it will open the eyes of some lost sheep who were scattered in this movement. Mm -hmm. Um I think that it has done that, but it's not going to be the end of it because this is a judicial hardening at some level. Uh, false teachers are in and of themselves part of God's judgment. And it's exactly what God said in Jeremiah chapter 5, there in verses 30 and 31. He, God says that he's seen a horrifying thing in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. you know, And, and then God says, and my people love it so. My people love it, so that's what they want. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's always going to be those people that no matter what evidence you show them, they're going to cling to this stuff because that's what they want. And it's, it's a judgment of God on them. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a harsh reality for us to hear, um, but it's real. And so, you know, I, I would just say, you know, add a couple things for the guys who are listening, thinking about their family, their friends. Um, I mean, you, you've you've brought it back multiple times to the word of God being sufficient. And man, we could just hammer that time and time and time again, and it never be enough. Um, I'm, I'm looking at Hebrews 4.12. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, we, we know that passage. And, you know, the point being that it's the word of God that breaks through. Uh, it's the word of God that, you know, the, the means by which God uses to bring people to truth. Um, and so prayer, you know, making sure that 
you know, you as an individual witnessing to your family and your friends that you fully believe in the power of words God and you trust that in God's own way, in, in God's own time, um, you know, that he'll do what he wants to do and, and you're just faithful to constantly bring up the truth in, in a loving way. You know, what you don't want to do probably is just call your, your brother, your sister, a heretic and throw a copy of strange fire at them or, or that kind of thing. And, and just be patient because, you know, like you said earlier, Justin, guys can be, or, or I think you referenced this earlier, guys can be in this movement for a really long time uh, yeah. before they come out. I, I mean, I myself w- was in it for years and, and from my perspective, I can tell you that there were always little things here and there that bothered me. And, and that was hindsight, right? I can see God's providence working in my life now looking back. And, and you get messages, you know, all the time of guys who have been stuck in that movement for, you know, years and years and years. So don't give up. Be faithful, you know, with the word of God. And uh, th- there was something else I wanted to touch on, brother. Talking about experiences in the charismatic church, it's almost always, I think, centered around what what a charismatic would think the Holy Spirit is doing to them or in them or through them. So, brother, just elaborate maybe a little bit. What is the actual function of the Holy Spirit? You said, and rightly so, that it's not to throw you on the ground like a goldfish out of water. You know, it's not to make you bark like a dog on a stage or the Beth Moors that think God tells them to build snowmen. Uh, that, that is not the function of the Holy Spirit. So what is the function? Because this could be a very easy conversation to get into possibly with, uh, with a family member or friend. Yeah, sure. Great question. Uh, the role of the Holy Spirit, it, it would depend on whether you're, you're talking about a converted or an unconverted person. Of course, for the unconverted person, it is to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And uh, convict them of the truth of the gospel. And for God's sheep, he regenerates them through the effectual call of the gospel. Now, once you're converted, the role of the Holy Spirit is primarily to uh, aid in our sanctification and conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And the way he does that is by his work of illumination. He illumines. He doesn't give us new information. He doesn't give us revelation because that's, that is new information that is not recorded in Scripture. That's not happening today. But what is happening today is illumination. He illumines the meaning of God's Word to us as we read and study it. He he creates in us a desire to read and study God's Word so that we can know God, know Christ. He helps us to understand the Word of God. It's not, you know, there is certainly this supernatural uh, element of, of understanding Scripture that, that can only come to the regenerate mind. I mean, lost people can understand facts about the Bible. They can even understand the facts of the gospel. But it's only the regenerate mind that has a love for truth and a desire to obey truth. Mm-hmm. Loves what God loves, hate what, hates what God hates. And the Holy Spirit cultivates that in us. Uh, it's not an automatic thing either, though. It's not just... You know, you you go to bed one night and you wake up in the morning and he's downloaded all this information to you like you're doing a software update or something. It's, you know, it's it's not a it's not a passive thing. It's we have a role to play in our sanctification. There's a reason that Paul said 
writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to study, to show yourself approved. So you don't expect God to just download information to you. He's not going to do that. But what he will do as you study, he will help you to understand. Mm. And he'll give you the, the uh, ability to, to obey what you know from Scripture. And, um, and as this progressive sanctification goes on, we, our minds are more and more conformed to that of Christ. Our desires be- become uh, are more in line with his desires, our affections more in line with his affections. Over time, we should see an increasing pattern of holiness in our lives and a decreasing pattern of sin. doesn't mean that we ever attain to a level of sinless perfection, and we all stumble, you know, here and there in the sin. We stumble into it, but we don't swim in it. Mm-hmm. We don't enjoy sin. We don't relish sin because we don't want to grieve God. That's the mark of a believer. We don't want to grieve God. And so, so over time, progressive sanctification, uh, increasing pattern of holiness, decreasing pattern of sin, that's his work. He, he gives us a love for the brethren. And I, I know, Nathaniel, you've, you've experienced this just as, as, uh, as I have. You go in some far-flung country somewhere around the world, and you can meet some like-minded believers, and there's just an instant bond there in fellowship and love that you have for them and they have for you, even though you've just met. But we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family. Yeah, and absolutely. So it gives us that, that love for one another. Um, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. He empowers our, our preaching and teaching, uh, and, and it will have its effect on, the, on God's, God's own. It will have its intended effect. God's mm-hmm. word does not return void. So, so this, is, this is what the, the work of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. And, and if I can, just to tag along, one of the things that grieves me, Nathaniel, about uh, some, some things in our own movement, our Reformed mm-hmm you know, soteriologically reformed Calvinistic circles is there's this group of this group within our camp, the young, restless and reformed that it's been called Mm. some guys that really like Calvinism. You know, they like the doctrines of grace. They like that systematized theology and the five points and, you know, cause it, you know, it's logical and and it is. uh, And, and, you know, they like to quote the reformers, quote Luther and Calvin and, Zwingli and and all these guys and Spurgeon and all, but they take liberties uh, and they they have this kind of a casual relationship with sinful things Mm. and and they abuse what they perceive at least to be their liberties in Christ. Uh, And it's a stumbling block for a lot of people. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Alcohol. It, it's you know I'm I'm grieved by the the casual relationship that so many in our camp seem to have with alcohol, and they yeah. flaunt what they perceive to be their liberties. Now I'm not going to be like this, you know, independent fundamentalist Baptist KJV only kind of person. And say you know if alcohol touches your lips, then that is inherently sinful, and you're probably not even saved. I'm not I'm not saying that at all. And, and you know, I don't drink at all. I don't. I don't touch it. I don't have need for it. Don't even have taste for it. But I don't need it. And there's nothing good that comes out of it. But why? You know, if if you want to if you want to do that in the privacy of your own home, yeah, you know, that's between you and the Lord. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say that's sinful. 
but why flaunt it? Yeah, yeah. Why flaunt it in people's faces and like brag about it? Do people not realize that there's a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been saved out of that stuff? Mm. And you're going to flaunt it in their faces like it's no big deal? It is a big deal. There's been a lot of families destroyed over alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of marriages destroyed and a lot of dead bodies, quite honestly, out on the highways from alcohol. A lot of abused wives from alcohol. And, and, and a lot of people have been saved out of that. And you're going to flaunt that. You know, it, it shows a lot of immaturity. It, it really does. It shows a lot of immaturity in my view. Um, profanity. Uh, hey, let me say something. There's nothing cool about using profanity from the pulpit. Mm, like yeah, some Agreed. in our circles have done. There's nothing cool about that. Uh, it, that, that, is, that. That brings reproach on Christ and goes against the clear teaching of Scripture. As Calvinists, we should be, our lives should be known for holiness. Mm, yeah, yeah. Not how close we can get to the edge and still not technically sin. You know, if, that, if that's your view, then, then you've got a lot of growing in the Lord to do. Yeah, you're right, brother. I, I've actually uh, been thinking about doing an episode called Bad Words, Booze, and Bible Studies, uh, just dealing with... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> with, that, with that issue. Um, it, but you're right, brother. And, you know, to kind of tie that problem in our own camp in, into this podcast, I, I think a lot of guys think that in, in order to be able to address, you know, uh, doctrinal issues and things with um, charismatic friends, that they have to do it in a worldly way. And so you, you get this idea of, well, hey, you know, let's, let's go out and, and drinking and, and smoke cigars, and, and then we can have a, a conversation about, um, you know, whatever doctrinal thing you want to deal with, whether it's a charismatic thing or something else. And you're right, it's flaunted. Um, you know, I, I actually came out of an alcoholic home. Uh, my, my dad growing up, was an alcoholic. It totally ruined my family. Um, it was a horrible upbringing. Now, by God's grace, uh, as an adult, my dad came to Christ. He gave up alcohol, but he always struggled with it. Um, in fact, there were times where my dad couldn't even go to a church service if they were doing communion, um, and they insisted knowing all of that uh, on still using alcohol. And so, yeah, I agree with you, brother. Um, too many guys, you know, particularly my age in, in their, in their 30s and younger, um, but there's some older ones who, yeah, they have the pictures floating around of a cigar and a bourbon in one hand um, yeah. all over social media. It's, it's not helpful. Um, if you're a shepherd and you're doing that, I, I, I will just flat out say you're at the very least a poor shepherd because yeah. of the thoughtlessness of the people you shepherd and their struggles or the guys who may try to justify it because of you. Um, it, it's, it's just a poor thing to do. So yeah, like you said, also I, I won't besmirch someone if they want to do those things in the privacy of their own home, but certainly don't flaunt it uh, out around and, and, you know, don't feel like you have to engage in um, worldly things to talk to your family and friends uh, about, about, 
you know, these issues about charismatic things. Um, the party scene is actually pretty big in the charismatic church, believe it or not. And I'm sure you're aware of that. Oh, and, <laughs> and, yeah, and it's because um, the charismatic church teaches a habit of needing experiences. And the party scene just plays into that, right? You yeah. feel good. You uh, There's no condemnation in, in liberties. There's no, you know, the, in the so much of the charismatic church, holiness is just not something you hear talked about it. It's not something that is serious in the charismatic church. You will never hear about the holiness of God um, preached on a charismatic stage uh, more than once anyway. And, and think, of, think of the irony of that. The, the charismatics who have an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and yet what you, do you not hear from charismatic pulpits? Holiness. And yet they, have, they claim to have an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, it's just stunning in its irony. It, it, is, it is peak irony, brother, to be sure. Um, you know, so ra- wrapping up, I, I would, I, just to tie all this together, you know, one, trust in the Word of God. It, it's, it's the power to break through in truth. Um, I can't change someone's mind, but God's, God can and God's Word can. Um, and, and then, you know what, I would just say, like you mentioned uh, before the brief segue there, um, study to show yourself approved because for the guys who are like, I just don't know how to even start these conversations, one, one way for certain to prepare yourself is to be diligently in the word yourself, right? It, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to bring to remembrance those things which we have been taught and we know. But you have to know them first, right? He, like you said, uh, yeah. the, he just doesn't download stuff into our brain that we've never known before. Um, so get into the word of God, study diligently, study out these doctrines, these things that we've talked about. Uh, we're going to put a link to Justin's cloud without waters. You can go to his website. We'll put a link to that. They're actually extraordinary videos. I mean, Justin really, and truly, um, you, you do an excellent, excellent job of, uh, taking people through what's being taught in the charismatic church and side by side with what scripture actually shows. And I think you do it on, on a projector or a screen or whatever. Um, I, I would recommend everyone investing in one of those videos. I mean, it, it is such a good thing because it, it teaches you the power of the word. It teaches you uh, the habit of asking the question, what does scripture say about this? Um, and it gives you a lot of good kind of ammunition, as it were, uh, in your arsenal when you're having these conversations with family and friends. So, um, yeah, I- any last words, Justin, before before we end the podcast here? Yeah, brother, uh, I just I appreciate the invitation to come on, and uh, I appreciate your friendship so very much and, and the work that you're doing. And, and uh, I would encourage people just to have a confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture know that scripture is everything we need and watch your life and your doctrine closely as paul said watch your doctrine in your life closely you can have you can have sound doctrine and not have a holy life okay you can ha- you can have make intellectual assent and have sound doctrine and not live a holy life but you cannot live a holy life without sound doctrine mm-hmm. and so Study to show yourself approved, and let's not seed the Holy Spirit 
to the heretics. It's they who have a very small, diminished view of the Holy Spirit, not not us. Well, amen, brother. Thank you for that. Um, you're, you're a blessing to the body of Christ. And guys, we appreciate you tuning in and listening to us today. And as always, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.